0: The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. Hey Ishers, it's Jamie. Welcome to another episode of Murderish. Before we get into this case, I want to say thank you to Jessica for becoming a Patreon supporter. If you want to further support the show, like Jessica, head over to patreon.com murderish to see some perks I'm offering in exchange for your monthly support. Some of you may have seen a post in Instagram or in the Murderish Facebook group recently for a collaboration I'm doing with my friend, Amber. Amber owns and operates Skin and Soul Body, where she creates fabulous, handmade skin and body products for men and women. I've tried just about every product she offers, and they've all been amazing especially her bath bombs and whipped soaps, which also serve as shaving cream. My husband loves the Skin and Soul Body Beard Oil. Amber was kind enough to create special murderish-themed bath bombs and whipped soaps. You'll see pictures of her creations in a post I've pinned to the top of the Murderish Facebook group feed. If you love handmade, luxurious skin and body products and you're murderish, head over to skinsoulbody.com and enter promo code MURDERISH at checkout for 15% off your entire order. That's skinsoulbody.com, promo code MURDERISH at checkout. Or you can find Skin and Soul Body on social media, send a DM, and mention MURDERISH for 15% off. Lastly, you may have noticed I've been running ads more consistently on the show lately. These ads are tremendously helpful in keeping Murderish content flowing for your listening pleasure, and for me personally. Producing Murderish isn't cheap and creating even one episode can take several days or weeks. So it's really nice to supplement podcast expenses with ad revenue. There are many ways to help the podcast and supporting sponsors is definitely one of them. When you purchase something advertised on Murderish using a special promo code or URL, those sponsors will be more likely to advertise on Murderish again, which means more content for you. This episode is sponsored by Cove a convenient way to treat migraines. You'll hear more about Cove a little later. Now, let's dive into today's case. On October 15, 1990, in Jacksonville, Florida, a tragic fire would change the field of arson investigation forever. Decades-old fires, which were determined to be from arson, were now going to be re-examined as a result of what is widely known as the Lime Street Fire. Tragically, six people and an unborn child would have to lose their lives in order to effect change in the way fires were investigated. Emergency services responded to a call from a police officer who was on routine patrol. The call came in at 11.35 p.m. The caller was reporting a fire at 527 Lime Street in Jacksonville. As they arrived, they found 35-year-old Gerald Lewis standing in the front yard of the house along with his three-year-old son, Jeremiah. The first person to the scene, Duval County Sheriff's Deputy G.A. McHale, later said that he could see flames from the fire on Lime Street while he was driving on I-10. When Mikhail arrived on scene, Lewis told him that there were people inside the house and that he could hear their cries for help. Since the front of the house was engulfed in flames, Mikhail went around to the back and tried opening the back door. It was locked. Looking inside the window, Mikhail didn't see any fire in that part of the house. Still, he could not get into the house because there were burglar bars on the windows. About two minutes after Mikhail reached the scene, the fire department arrived. Firefighter Steve Gabert was able to gain entry to the house through the front door and even gained access into the hallway. Shortly after entering the home, Gabert fell through a hole that the fire had burned into the floor. Fortunately, he was okay, but he had to retreat and go back out into the front yard for safety. Firefighter Randy Weiss went around to the back of the house, kicked the door open, and could see the fire going all the way up the stairs to the second floor. Eventually, firefighters were able to get the Lime Street fire under control. Once they did, it was clear the house was completely destroyed. The furniture was nothing more than burned, unrecognizable heaps. The window frames had melted. The panes of glass had exploded. Firefighters entered the house and made their way up the stairs. It was at this time the worst-case scenario was realized. Near the top of the stairs, firefighters saw the body of a child. Just a few feet away were two more children and two women. One of them was pregnant. The body of a fourth child was found in a bedroom, or what used to be a bedroom. The fire had burned all of their bodies beyond recognition. Duval County Deputy R.E. Smith, a 14 year veteran, said, quote, I've never been to hell before, but that's what I'd associate it with. It was the worst thing I've seen in my entire police career. The six victims were Gerald Lewis's wife, Carolyn, age 35, Carolyn's daughter from a previous relationship, Lakendra Marsh, age 12, Carolyn's sister, Victoria Marsh, 23 years old. And Victoria's three children, Chris, aged five, Jackie, aged four, and Danielle, aged two. Victoria's unborn child was the seventh victim. She was seven months pregnant when she died. Firefighter Randy Weiss, only 22 years old at the time, says the image of Lakendra Marsh haunts him to this day. When he found 12 year old Lakendra, she was kneeling against a bed, which now only consisted of the remnants of a few box springs. Weiss said, quote, I still vividly remember that child in a praying posture over the bed. I've been to thousands of fires and seen many hundreds of deaths, but every time I ride by Lime Street, I remember it. The fire department videotaped the medical examiner's staff carrying out the six bodies. In the video, Gerald Lewis can be seen in the background, pacing back and forth, shaking his head, throwing his hands up in the air and then shaking his head again, almost as if he was arguing with someone. As investigators began looking over the scene and speaking with emergency responders, they got different accounts regarding Gerald Lewis's behavior. Deputy McHale said Lewis was agitated. Deputy Smith claimed that Lewis didn't call 911, nor did he ask anyone else to call. Smith did say, however, that Lewis went to a neighbor's house, which looked like it was abandoned for a long time and knocked on the door, but nobody answered. A third responder said that Lewis just watched the house burn. When police interviewed Lewis, they were immediately suspicious. He told one investigator that he and his wife had been fighting over finances, but told another officer they had not been fighting. Lewis further said that Carolyn had taken out a restraining order against him in August of 1990 during a domestic violence incident during which he threatened to burn the house down. The restraining order kept Lewis from entering the house unless Carolyn invited him in. Lewis reported drinking two beers earlier in the evening of the fire, and Carolyn didn't want him in the house when he drank. Usually, under these circumstances, Lewis would sleep inside of his car in the driveway. The couple had a divorce hearing scheduled on the 18th, just three days after the fire. Lewis told investigators that he was asleep inside his car when the fire broke out. He said he woke up and saw the flames when he looked through the living room window. He said he got out of his car and ran inside the house. On his way into the house, he ran past Carolyn, who was trying to get the garden hose to work. When Lewis got into the living room where the fire was, he said Victoria handed him some water, which he poured onto the sofa cushion, attempting to get the flames out. Meanwhile, Carolyn was still trying to turn the garden hose on in the front yard, but it wouldn't work. At that time, Carolyn and Victoria ran upstairs to get the children. Lewis said that he tried to follow them, but the fire was growing, and he couldn't see anything due to the thick smoke. At that time, he turned around and saw his son, Jeremiah, who was standing behind him on the stairs. Gerald grabbed Jeremiah by the arm and ran out of the house. When they got to the front porch, Gerald said he heard a loud whoosh, and then he looked back and saw that the entire house was on fire. He thought the total amount of time that passed between him getting out of the car to him and Jeremiah getting outside into the front yard took about three to five minutes. In 1990, conclusions in arson investigations were obtained from observations handed down from one investigator to another. Investigation methods weren't necessarily based on science. Arson investigator and fire researcher John Lentini, who was mentioned in the murderous episode based on the Todd Willingham case, said, quote, traditional theories about how fires burn had been developed over generations by firefighters who'd observed thousands of fire scenes. It wasn't quantifiable theory, more of a set of beliefs rooted in experience, but it carried the weight of fact. And as with any tradition in the close fraternity of firefighters, it was honored for the very fact that it represented the wisdom of veterans. Arson expert John DeHaan said, quote, Most of the fire investigation into the mid-1980s was taught by word of mouth by people who had been doing it for 20 years. There wasn't a lot of science in fire investigation. It was oral tradition. Fire investigators at that time relied on untested theories little analysis, and a collection of beliefs from other firefighters, which were just accepted as being true. Their knowledge came from investigators going through the debris after a fire and making assumptions regarding what they believed happened. Investigators would also use suspect confessions to confirm their theories. Testing methods used, at times, seemed almost primitive. For example, investigators actually used to test for accelerants by tasting the residue in the debris. Private arson consultant, Patrick Kennedy, said of this method, quote, the books said to eat a piece of white bread between tastes to clear the palate." Once investigators from the fire department began going through what was left of the Lime Street house, they quickly determined the cause of fire was arson. They listed seven indicators that brought them to this conclusion. First, there was a Clorox bottle partially full of gasoline on the floorboard of the car Lewis had been sleeping in. Second, the investigators said that a sofa which was on fire would smolder, not combust, as Lewis had claimed happened in the Lime Street house. Third, the glass blown out of the windows by the fire was not stained with smoke, as would be found in a fire that was slow-burning. Fast-burning fires were, at the time, assumed to be arson, because investigators believed accelerants made fires burn faster and hotter than fires where an accelerant was not used. Fourth, there were burn marks on the walls. Fifth, there was a pattern of raised ridges on the wooden floorboards called alligatoring. Investigators claimed this meant the fire was most intense in these areas. Sixth, there were pore patterns in the hallway. Poor patterns are burn patterns that appear to follow a liquid accelerant. And lastly, investigators said the fire was fast-moving, suggesting that an accelerant had been used. Based on these factors, investigators concluded that Lewis had taken Jeremiah, his only child, out of the house, then poured gasoline throughout the living room, the hallway, and onto the front porch before setting the house on fire. Anyone who's had a migraine knows they're the absolute worst. My best friend suffers from migraines. That's why I was excited to partner with Cove. Cove is on a mission to make migraines less of a headache by offering acute and preventative migraine treatment. Cove's migraine treatment begins with a simple consultation from the convenience of your own home. After the consultation, a doctor reviews your symptoms and decides the best treatment. Then... Your personalized supply of medication is delivered right to your doorstep. My friend participated in Cove's consultation process and she found it to be simple yet thorough, ensuring Cove's doctors would have a clear understanding of her symptoms to make sure she receives proper treatment. Your treatment is supervised by a doctor who is licensed to practice medicine in your state and all medication prescribed by Cove's doctors are FDA approved. The last thing you want to do is drive to the doctor when you have a migraine. Cove understands this, and that's why they essentially have a doctor on call for you. If you're ready to treat your migraines with Cove, make sure to use my special link to get your first month of treatment for free. Just go to withcove.com/murderish. That's w-i-t-h-c-o-v-e.com/murderish. Gerald Lewis was arrested and charged with arson, six counts of first-degree murder, and one count of manslaughter for Victoria's unborn child. It was a tragedy that saddened the community. Fire raged through this wooden home one night last October. Firefighters could do nothing to save the six people inside, including a pregnant woman and four children. Gerald Lewis, the husband of one of the victims, was at the scene. He was charged with arson and six counts of first-degree murder. Investigators found a gas can in his car. He had earlier threatened to set the house on fire, and only his son was rescued. All the suspicion pointed toward Lewis. According to newspapers, Jeremiah initially told investigators that his father started the fire. But later, he said that he was the one who accidentally set the fire while he was playing with matches. Assistant State's Attorney Frank Ashton said it was too difficult to rely on statements provided by a child so young in age. Defense Attorney Pat McGinnis knew things did not look good for his new client, Gerald Lewis. But Lewis was adamant that he did not start the fire, and he said he could explain some of the factors being used against him to make him look guilty. He said he tried to extinguish the flames by dumping pots of water onto the couch cushion to no avail. He said the Clorox bottle with gasoline in it was used for the lawnmower, as he had mowed the lawn earlier that day. And as far as Deputy Smith saying he had not called 911 or asked anyone else to, Lewis told McGinnis that he and Jeremiah ran over to Edison Avenue, a nearby cross street, and waved a car down. Lewis said that he asked the driver to call 911 because his house was on fire. The lady in the vehicle told Lewis that she was late for work and she couldn't stop to make the call. This was before cell phones. Luckily for Lewis, McGinnis knew quite a bit about arson. He called arson investigators and asked them to search through the remains of the house. The investigators found melted pots in the hallway, which Lewis previously said were used to try to douse the couch with water. They found melted remains of a hose underneath the porch, which Lewis said his wife tried to bring into the house as she attempted to extinguish the fire. The investigators hired by McGinnis told him they believed Lewis was telling the truth. McGinnis's next move was to run some tests. The results of these tests seemed to support Lewis's story even more. Samples taken from the house did not show any traces of accelerant. Grass clippings were observed in the backyard, which supported Lewis's claim that he had mowed the yard the day of the fire. McGinnis took a picture of the grass clippings. He also had the gas from the Clorox bottle tested and compared to what was found in the lawnmower. They matched perfectly, and this further corroborated Lewis's statements. Next, McGinnis went down to the Times Union, a local newspaper, the lady Lewis claimed he had stopped and asked to call 911 worked at the Times Union, and McGinnis wanted to find out if Lewis's claim that he spoke with her was true. During lunchtime, McGinnis went to the Times Union lunchroom to see if he could find the woman. Luckily, she happened to be there that day. McGinnis spoke with the woman and learned her name was Karen Budget. Karen confirmed everything Gerald Lewis said. She told McGinnis that she was driving on Edison Avenue on her way to work the night of the fire. Karen said Gerald Lewis and his son, Jeremiah, appeared out of nowhere, right in front of her car. She said it happened so suddenly she almost hit both of them. When she stopped, Lewis asked her to call the fire and police departments. McGinnis let the prosecution know about the information he had gathered and told them he believed his client was innocent. Prosecutor Ashton considered this, and although he still believed Lewis was guilty, he thought the defense might have a point. The fire marshal's report had also just come in. Although the original report stated that an accelerant had been found on Lewis's clothes, the clothing had been retested, and the results came back negative for accelerant. At this point, Ashton consulted with George Bette, his co-counsel for the case against Lewis. The pair requested the state of California to lend them John DeHaan, an expert in arson investigation. The state also hired John Lentini, a well-respected fire and arson researcher from Georgia, to help with the case. Looking at the report, Lentini initially agreed with fire investigators, who concluded the fire was deliberately set. He said the fire was very hot and fast-moving and that he could see pore patterns on the floor. It was also curious that the victims died from the heat and flames from the fire and not from smoke inhalation. Lentini believed his conclusions would be adding on to the investigator's case, which would ultimately send Gerald Lewis to death row. At the Lime Street scene, DeHaan noticed that the home two houses from where 527 Lime Street used to be had an almost identical layout. The home was abandoned. DeHaan had the idea that, that they could buy the abandoned house and test Lewis's story regarding how the fire began. The prosecution, with a budget of twenty thousand for the case, agreed to purchase the house, leading to one of the very first fire investigation reenactments of its kind. The abandoned nearby house was purchased and set up as identical to Lewis's home as possible. Inmates were brought in from the county jail to install drywall, replace the broken windows, and lay carpet. DeHaan and Lentini contacted the company who manufactured the couch that had been in the living room when the fire started. The furniture company informed them the couch model had been discontinued. After some researching, they were able to find someone who had the same model couch. They gave the owner of the couch enough money to buy new furniture and brought the replica couch into the abandoned house. They placed a similar coffee table and TV in the same spots in the living room as had been at Lewis's home before the fire. Neighbors and family were asked to come through the house to make sure it was set up as close as possible to that of Lewis' home on October 15th, the evening of the fire. They also placed bags of clothes in the hallway, just as there had been the night of the fire. Once everything was ready, DeHaan and Lentini put carbon monoxide detectors and thermostats throughout the house and connected them to a table outside where they could monitor them. A firefighter then set the house on fire. DeHaan and Lentini waited, sure that the house would burn just as they had expected and not as Lewis had claimed. They knew the result of this experiment would be the final nail in the coffin, so to speak. The result of this experiment would likely be what was needed to convict Gerald Lewis of murder. They watched intently as flames spread along the couch. The fire ignited and grew surprisingly fast. Investigators didn't realize the couch cushions were so highly combustible. By the time all three cushions were ablaze, smoke had gone all the way to the ceiling of the living room, and the air had turned from black to superheated red, Temperatures would be noted up to 1,200 degrees during the experiment. The entire room was on fire, and it happened much faster than they had expected. The fire continued to spread up the stairs to the second floor. Haan and Lentini then had firefighters put the fire out. Luckily, just as one investigator left the front porch, the whooshing sound that Lewis had described was heard, and flames encompassed the area, where the investigator had been standing just seconds before. The total amount of time from when the sofa was set on fire until the flame shot up to the second floor was about four minutes, just as Lewis had reported to investigators. DeHaan and Lentini were stunned. One of the firefighters remarked, We may have just proved the defendant's case. A vital concept in fire study involves the understanding of flashover. Flashover is when a room becomes so hot that everything explodes at the same time. It occurs when smoke and gas build up to a point at which the entire room explodes into flames, destroying everything. Lentini explains it like this, quote, Flashover is a transition point where you go from having a fire in a room to a room on fire. Post-flashover is when a fire goes from being controlled by some type of fuel to one that is controlled by ventilation, where the fire moves toward a source of oxygen, such as an open door or a window. In the Lime Street case, the fire moved out to the hallway and up the stairs. Neither DeHaan nor Lentini expected the house to catch fire so fast. Conventional theory at the time was that flashover would not occur for 15 to 20 minutes unless an accelerant was used. They eventually realized that the oil-based polyurethane in the couch cushions helped to fuel the fire much more than they expected. When DeHaan and Lentini examined the damage, they also saw V-shaped patterns, which the original fire investigators used to determine where the fire originated. However, the experimental fire was started in the living room, and the V-shaped pattern was by the doorway. They were able to determine from this that V-shaped patterns can help determine the point of origin for small fires. However, With larger fires that exhibit post-flashover, this isn't necessarily the case, as V-shaped patterns can occur more than once, every time a different object ignites. Prosecutor Ashton said, quote, There was enormous heat, unbelievable amounts of heat. Everything caught on fire. You saw flames coursing out of that room and up the stairs. Nobody knows whether those folks upstairs had any chance to get out. You just don't know. Fire investigators had always accepted that because heat rises, any evidence of a floor burning was an indication of a fire which was started with an accelerant. DeHaan and Lentini's experiment proved, however, that flashover will cause the same damage, which meant investigators could no longer rely on using floor burns to make a determination of arson. Next, Dehan and Lentini decided to test the prosecution's theory that Lewis set the fire using an accelerant. They had the inmates repair the abandoned home to the state it was in prior to the first experiment. They brought in furniture and set up the house just like they had before. They then poured onto the couch cushions the same amount of gasoline that was missing from the Clorox bottle in Lewis's car. They then set the couch on fire. This second fire took about a minute longer to reach the second floor. Once they compared the two controlled experimental fires, they realized they could not say with any amount of certainty that the fire at Lewis's home was deliberately set. They gave several reasons for this new conclusion. First of all, trail marks were found on the wood after the fire at 527 Lime Street. These marks were thought to have been an indicator of accelerant. They were also present in the first experiment where no accelerant was used. Second, they concluded accidental fires can cause the same red-hot, fast-moving flames which were observed at actual arson fires. Third, arson and fire investigators had always believed that flashover took much longer to occur than a few minutes. They surmised that flashover took about 15 to 20 minutes to occur. The fire in the living room, once it started running out of oxygen, moved toward another source out into the hallway and up to the second floor. The fire was being fed by the oxygen in those areas. These flames caused the hallway to go into flashover very quickly and push the fire out onto the front porch. Once the couch and the other living room furniture ignited, the fire turned from being fuel-controlled to ventilation-controlled or post-flashover. And finally, the belief had previously been that fire burns hotter at the spot an accelerant was used, and that floor marks from the fire were evidence of arson. Now they realize that floor marks can result from the fire being hot enough to melt objects in the room when flashover occurs. DeHaan and Lentini concluded that the only way to determine if an accelerant had been used to start the fire was to use a chromatographic lab analysis to correctly identify what the accelerant was. The overall conclusion of their experiment was that any fire-reaching flashover, not just an arson fire, can produce identical marks to those of an arson fire. At this point, Ashton knew he could not try the case. Although the experiments that DeHaan and Lentini performed did not prove that Lewis was innocent, they did show that his version of how the fire started was more plausible than the arson scenario. Prosecutor Ashton said, quote, Six people were dead, and if somebody set a fire intentionally to kill those people, it is a horrible, horrible crime. But on the other hand, if the fire were accidentally set by a child in the house or somebody else in the house, it is equally horrible to take somebody who is totally innocent and and try them for a crime because there is some circumstantial evidence that they might be guilty and convict them of it and send them to death row. Ashton and the state's attorney's office were criticized for dropping the case, saying that it was a matter for a jury to decide. Ashton, however, believed he had a moral obligation to drop the charges. He also believed that if Lewis had gone to trial, he would have been convicted just because the fire killed six innocent people and an unborn baby. Ashton said, quote, most jurors tend to believe the prosecutor's case. The defendant has two strikes against him. The police have arrested him, and the state's attorney's office is prosecuting him. So you run a great risk of having an innocent man convicted. Lentini also faced blowback from others in his field. Lentini said, quote, although the prosecutors were relieved to have avoided bringing a questionable case to trial— I was derided and demeaned by many fire investigators who would have gone forward with the case, even with the test results we had, based on their visual observation of the poor patterns on the floor. In March of 1991, after awaiting trial behind bars for five months, Gerald Lewis walked out of the Duval County Jail alongside his defense attorney, Pat McGinnis. The state's attorney's office had just announced they were dropping all charges against Lewis. When asked in an interview about being free, Lewis said that although he was out of jail, he had lost his wife, he'd been portrayed by the media as a monster, and he was brutalized by other inmates in the jail because they just assumed he was guilty. Worst of all, he had also lost custody of his only child. Young Jeremiah was now living with Carolyn's sister, Mary Sue Carey, who was granted custody after the fire. To make matters worse, Mary Sue Carey believed Lewis was guilty. After he was released from jail, the public defender's office took up a collection for Lewis to buy him a bus ticket back to his family in Shreveport, Louisiana. Lewis planned to get back on his feet and then return to Jacksonville to regain custody of Jeremiah. Sadly, Lewis never returned. In a 1991 interview with the Times Union, Mary Sue Carey said that despite the physical abuse Lewis inflicted upon Carolyn, Her sister loved Gerald. He was an unemployed carpenter at the time they met. Carolyn would see Gerald out on the street. Once she found him sleeping under the I-10 overpass, she'd take him in on occasion. Carrie eventually moved to Shreveport to be near her mother, Mitty Marsh. Jeremiah didn't see his father much, as Carrie would not let him inside of her house. Although he wasn't allowed in Carrie's house, Gerald would visit Jeremiah when he would stay with Mitty, Jeremiah later said his father would tell him to stay in school and be the first one in their family to go to college. Jeremiah said, quote, And he told me he loved my mother with all his heart, and he said it wasn't supposed to be like this at all. Jeremiah said his aunt and grandmother never discussed the fire. He barely remembers his mother, as he was only three years old when she died. He knew she died in the fire with his half-sister, his aunt Victoria, and her children— but he didn't know much else. After Mitty died, Jeremiah found a folder containing newspaper clippings of the fire. He tried speaking with his family about it, but they'd start to cry. Jeremiah said, quote, it was too emotional for them. I didn't want to cause anybody a problem. Then, after a while, I didn't want to see people cry, so I just didn't ask about it. Jeremiah eventually joined the Army National Guard and planned to join active duty, he now lives in Dallas, Texas, and he works for a cleaning service. Gerald Lewis does not talk about the fire or his arrest. In an interview with Folio Weekly, Lewis said, quote, not to be rude, but I wish you'd leave it alone. A lot of time has passed by. He was also asked about his feelings regarding his case helping to free others who were wrongly accused of arson. Lewis replied by saying, quote, just leave it alone, all right? The Lime Street experiment changed how The Lime Street experiment changed how arson investigators viewed fires and how they determined whether they were caused by arson. The ATF and the National Fire Academy conducted the same experiments as DeHaan and Lentini had at Lime Street. Fire investigators previously believed that carbon monoxide diffuses quickly through a house during a fire. Lime Street taught them that actually, carbon monoxide levels can be very low until flashover occurs. The Lime Street case helped to debunk long-held beliefs by the arson community. It also helped to change arson investigation training. No longer was it acceptable to take theories handed down by investigators as fact. Now, training was based on actual science. The Lime Street fire case became a manual for future investigation, and it gave investigators the opportunity to experiment with starting fires in order to give them a better understanding of them instead of relying on stories handed down from old investigators. The origins of fire science began in the 1970s by a few fire experts who decided to look at science behind how fire started. John Dehan, who was one of those fire experts, said, quote, We quickly realized that some of the things that were said in the books and were being taught and used by investigators didn't hold up. Fire scientists knew a lot about fires, Fire engineers knew a lot about preventing them. Fire investigators knew a lot about the aftermath. But the three groups never really talked to each other. Prior to the Lime Street case, assumptions about arson were merely assumptions. Fire expert John Lentini said, quote, It was witchcraft, really. In fact, in 1997, in an attempt to block the move to scientific method for arson investigation, the International Association of Arson Investigators Filed a brief in Florida, arguing that fire investigation is not a science and should not be subjected to the same requirements in court that are used for scientific theories, specifically verifiable results. Their reasoning was that arson findings were based on experience instead of science. A federal appeals court rejected the case, and the association eventually came around and started to embrace the idea of scientific inquiry. Today, Agencies such as the ATF's Explosives and Fire Science Laboratory and the National Fire Academy do similar reenactments of fires to determine their cause. Fire testing continued, and experiments have since confirmed that neither the temperature of a fire nor the speed at which it spreads is a valid indicator of arson. A textbook published in 1962 titled Fire and Arson Investigation attempted to examine what was then considered fire investigation science. The author, John A. Kennedy, put some of the theories at that time into the text. His textbook became a resource for fire departments, law enforcement, and insurance companies. Kennedy, who founded the first fire school in the U.S., said they worked with what they thought they knew at the time. Kennedy said, quote, I learned it by doing it. We, all arson investigators, were less than completely trained. Back then, when someone said it was arson, that was the final word. In 1977, the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration, which was part of the Justice Department, decided to create a book to assist fire investigators. Instead of working with scientists, the administration relied upon information from a survey, which was sent to fire investigators. The finished book titled Arson and Arson Investigation survey and assessment, reinforced the beliefs at the time about fire and arson. Kennedy's son, Patrick, who followed in his father's footsteps as an arson investigator, described how these untested theories finally began to unravel once scientific experimentation started to become the norm. Patrick said, quote, investigators were instructed to look at the way wood charred, and that would determine whether it was a fast fire or a slow fire. A fast one was caused by accelerants and arson. There was no research that supported that. But we all believed that 30 years ago. I was teaching it. Patrick added, quote, All these myths came about the same way. There was no science training then. Guys like my dad, they were smart guys. But they went to a bunch of fires to see how badly charred things were. And they would find gasoline and get a confession. And then... These anecdotal cases became a body of fact. Lentini called the Lime Street fire his epiphany, saying, quote, I almost sent a man to die, based on theories that were a load of crap. Lentini was scheduled for a deposition for the prosecution the next morning. He said of the experience, quote, I was going to help them send Gerald Lewis to Old Sparky, the electric chair. Some investigators refused to accept the new methods, and continued clinging to the stories handed down by generations of fire investigators. Not only did this attitude hamper investigators in getting to the truth, it sent innocent people to prison, being charged with arson when no arson occurred. John Lentini said, quote, "'Fire investigators, when they're testifying, they'll say fire burns up and out. Well, it does that, but only until it reaches the ceiling.'" and then it begins to behave entirely differently. You can quickly generate heat, release rates on the order of 3 megawatts, and to put that in context, your average portable space heater is 1.5 kilowatts. Multiply that by 2,000. According to statistics, there are approximately 500,000 structural fires in the U.S. each year, with 10-15% to deemed suspicious. That's 70,000 chances to screw up. Regarding the danger of investigators using unproven stories instead of science to make their determinations, Lentini said, quote, arson murder is the only crime that can land you on death row, based on the testimony of an expert witness who may not have attended college. Ishers, what do you think? Do you agree with the state dropping charges against Lewis? Or do you think a guilty man walked free? Head over to the Murderish Facebook group to discuss this case with me and other like minded people. You can also find me on Twitter at Murderish Pod or on Instagram at Murderish Podcast. If you like the show, do me a big favor and hit the subscribe button in your favorite podcast app. Tell a friend about Murderish or leave the show a positive rating and review in iTunes. Also, Stick around at the very end of this episode to hear a promo for California Dreaming, an awesome podcast that covers fascinating cases out of the Golden State. Interested in extra murderish perks? Go to patreon.com/murderish, where your monthly support could give you access to perks like bonus content, murderish t-shirts, stickers, a shout out on the podcast, discount codes at the merch store, and other cool stuff. Want to show the world you're not a murderer, just murder-ish? Check out my online merch store at murderishpodcast.threadless.com. I have t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other swaggy stuff available. Email any comments or questions you have to murderishjamie at gmail.com. That's murderish, jami at gmail.com. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John Buchanan of Audio Editing Solutions. Music in this episode was composed by Nico of We Talk of Dreams, This episode was researched and written by murderish researcher Steve Field. As always, ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. Roseanne, host of the California Dreaming podcast, a show that delves into the darker side of the not-so-golden state. From the story of Polly Class, to the North Hollywood shootout, to the death of funny man Phil Hartman, and many, many more fascinating true crime stories from my home state of California, you can find California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Podbean, and pretty much everywhere you love to listen to podcasts. Thank you so much, and sweet dreams.